Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. And I'm Anna Schwind. And we are here to discuss Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon, the first in an all-new fantasy series, an epic fantasy series, from the city of Damaswat. Or is it... (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have to tell you a secret, listeners. We don't actually know how to pronounce the name of the city where this is located. We're not sure whether it's Damsawat or Damsawat. And Dave promised me that we were going to say Damsawat, but then he didn't. So We could just start the recording in. over now. <laughs> fill in, folks. Figure it out. Oh, boy. All right. Anyways, from the city of Damsawat, which is a version of uh, an... Arabian city, um, and it's large, and it's cosmopolitan, and of course, everybody by now knows I love city stories, and that's one of the things I love about this book, is that the city is big, cosmopolitan, sprawling, has distinct neighborhoods that have distinct flavors, just like every city you've ever lived in. You know, sometimes the cities are so uniform or bland but this is definitely not the case with Damsawat. Yeah, it's teeming with life. It's teeming with different kinds of people in it, um, and and teeming with uh, teeming with rebellion too, right? Exactly. So let's. Um, is there anything else we should we should say, or should we go straight to Saladin right now? Yeah, let's do that. Could I, could I cut you off there, Anna? Nope. No. I was just okay. going to talk about how awesome Damsawat is, but. Hey. Oh, no, no, let's go go back and talk about how awesome Dom Swat is. Hey, Anna, <laughs> tell me how awesome Dom Swat is. Dom Swat is so awesome. It is a truly cosmopolitan large city. It is a center of trade, which means that there's a mingling of cultures there. And one of the things that's so fun about this is how we get to see the different cultures interact. But that doesn't mean that it has, that Dom Swat does not have its own distinct identity because it does. Um, and you get such a strong impression that the world as a whole is bigger than just what we're seeing, which is something I love when fantasy conveys to me. I hate it when they shrink the world to just what you're seeing, and you know that if you happen to look left or right, if you could, you'd just have gray screen. <laughs> yeah. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna see off stage, or you're gonna see the. Uh you're, you're going to see uh, Ed Wood, you know, bumping into the props exactly. or whatever. But not here. No, not here. Here you see that the world truly does extend outside of the bounds of the focus of the story. Now let's listen to Sal- Saladin. Awesome. Let's listen to Saladin. Hello, Podcastle listeners. Uh, this is Saladin Ahmed, author of the recently released fantasy novel Throne of the Crescent Moon. Uh I'm very happy to be here with you today. Uh, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and interviews recently, uh, but Podcastle is something special to me because long before the book came out, uh, they have been publishing my short fiction, um, seen lively discussion of it on uh, the forums here, and uh, just some beautiful podcasts produced of the work. Uh, and so uh, the whole crew there, uh, especially Dave, has been just wonderfully supportive, and uh, it's really it's really great to kind of uh, come home, as it were, uh, to talk about Throne of the Crescent Moon. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit today about the ways in which Throne is both a tribute to the kind of fantasy I grew up with and is a little bit of a pushing back against that fantasy. 
Now, as I say, uh, Throne is a, a sort of love letter and homage to the uh, kind of heroic fantasy that I grew up reading and watching and, uh, and playing. Uh, stuff like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, a little bit later, The Wheel of Time. And uh, as they are for many geeks, uh, those, are, those works are part of my very soul. They inflect my writing, but uh, they also, strangely, have probably affected the way I look at the world over the years. Uh, and Throne of the Crescent Moon is a kind of love letter uh, to those works and others, the fantasy of my youth. Uh, but it's also a response to that fantasy. That fantasy was wide-eyed, but sometimes myopic, and uh, my response is sometimes a, an out-and-out pushback against that myopia. The uh, kind of pushback that I'm talking about comes from uh, uh, from my own kind of autobiography. Uh, I was born in Detroit in the 70s. Uh, I was part of a working class Arab American enclave there, and uh, my father was a uh, a activist, a labor activist, and a, a kind of community activist uh, who taught me about my Arab heritage, taught me about. Um, caring about what happens to working people and poor people, um, and also taught me about fantasy and science fiction. And so all those things have sort of mashed up in my, uh, in my brain and in my, my soul. And uh, I guess the uh, throne of the crescent moon is kind of them jumbling together and, and coming out on paper. Um, a few instances of, uh, of the ways in which this kind of love and this pushback happen concurrently. I've rooted for I don't know how many uh, princes and princesses over the years in fantasy novels, and uh, yet I didn't want to celebrate hereditary power uncritically in that way, so I uh, have mostly lowborn characters, and they're uh, in the midst of a plot to usurp the, uh, the quote-unquote proper ruler. Um, I have read I don't know how many coming-of-age stories and related to them and loved them in fantasy, um, but I didn't want to write yet another one myself, and uh, so my main character uh, is uh, in his 60s and is more or less ready to retire from his vocation of monster hunting. Um, but the uh, biggest bit of pushback, uh, I suppose, is in the, uh, in the locale and the culture uh, that's at the center of Throne of the Crescent Moon. Um, we have a sort of pseudo-Arabia rather than a pseudo-Europe. And uh, that's my attempt to uh, both just kind of depict the kind of uh, the, a fantasy version of some of the cultures that I grew up with, uh, but also to uh, shift the center of the uh, typical fantasy map where uh, there's this sort of quasi-Arabian desert far off to the east of wherever the center of the action is happening. And uh, it's filled with, uh, with savages often. Um, and so this is sort of putting the land of the uh, Hara Dream, of Tolkien's Hara Dream, or Lewis's Kellerman, or uh, Jordan's A.L. Uh, at the center of the book, and seeing what happens when you do that, when you make that shift. Uh, and, uh, of course, what happens is that the world starts to look very different, and uh, so do the people in it. Um, different and yet still familiar, and I hope people will uh, will find something new and yet something they love then in this book. Wow. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Saladin for that. Um, 
Anna, one of the things that I really, really liked about this book was, um, and, and Saladin mentioned this when he was talking, was that um, the hero, Adula, is not a young man. He's, he's an older guy who fights monsters. He's cranky. He, uh, he's, a, he's, a sl- he's sloppy. He's a messy eater. He gets, he gets food everywhere. He farts. And, and, I mean, he's just this old man. Addicted um, to tea. Oh yeah, addicted to tea, uh, loves to read, and um, in in love with a uh, with a prostitute, who he's been seeing on and off again for most of his life, I think. And yeah, except for I think she just is like a pimp, right? She runs the house of ill repute. Oh, is she? Is she, I don't think she's actually an employee. Was she a former prostitute? Am I am I wrong? Possibly, that? maybe that's the normal career path. I couldn't tell you (laughs) okay so um but but despite all that i mean so he's kind of like um he's kind of like abraham van helsing and the anthony hopkins version not the hugh jackman version or you know kolchak the night stalker he's this old um not not handsome guy uh but he's totally kick-ass and it's a lot of fun to read uh a story like that from his perspective I really loved, and this is one of the things that Saladin was talking about, about the not privileging of youth as always being who the story is about. I thought that he, you know, we talk about all the time uh, levels of competency, and sometimes these uh, young heroes are just sort of magically hyper-competent or whatever. And it was very clear that while he was old and he had never been – you know, sort of much of a hand-to-hand fighter, that his vast store of knowledge, that his ability to quickly assess situations because he's been in so many of them is where his skill and gift is truly at. So you you, you could fully understand why he was such such an awesome ass-kicker despite being 60-plus. Right. Um, and, and it was realistic, and it made sense, and I loved that. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And... Um not to say that that he didn't um sorry let me back up not to say that there aren't young people and and you know beautiful people in the book as well right anna oh totally do you want to talk do you want to talk about them although i don't think that that um the young people another thing i liked is that they weren't paragons of beauty you know all the other characters talk about how they're not actually all that good looking um except i guess maybe um Rasid is supposed to be good looking, but Zamya, everybody talks about how she's kind of funny looking, but that doesn't prevent Rasid from falling head over heels for her. Oops, was that a spoiler? Sorry, guys. I, th- I think it's it pretty obvious right when, when <laughs> they meet. <laughs> and, and it's because they're kindred spirits, which is another thing I appreciate. Uh, and he didn't specifically talk about this as pushback. But there wasn't that, oh, he's beautiful, she's beautiful, so they fall in love. It was more of a like, oh, you see the world as I see the world. We have things in common. We have the same sort of drive. We like killing monsters. Um, Yeah, we really like killing monsters. So I really like you. And so I, I appreciated that aspect of it as well, that not being glossed over, that being a tad more realistic. Um, but actually my favorite characters are also the not young 
secondary characters. And all the secondary characters are great, which, again, you get the sense that all the people are real people and that there are more real people in it than the ones you actually see and get to talk to. Uh, again, we're talking about that fullness of the world, and it's expressed not only geographically, but also by the fullness of the second char- secondary characters. And um, so my favorites were the neighbors, who were longtime friends of Adula's, um, Dawood and Litaz, and they're an an unlikely love match. Um, she was some kind of princess and he was just some guy um, from a different country. So again, all that cultural interplay comes in right here. And actually, I really appreciated that they were homesick. You know, they'd been living in the city for a while, but they remembered where they came from and they were kind of homesick, kind of wanted to go back. And uh, one of those characters, Dawood, um, was just my favorite. And I, if I were to tell you why, it would probably be too spoilery. But when you read it, you'll probably see that he's, he's, he's special. He's something special. But they're, they're both awesome. I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that after talking with you a while about you know epic fantasy and stuff and, and the few epic fantasy stories we've kind of talked about here on Podcastle it's at the Spotlights is that we really, like, the secondary characters are maybe, maybe just as important, if not more important to us than the, than the primary characters, because they really make the world feel, um, feel full and immersive. And, and like with, uh, Dawood and Litas, that's definitely, that's definitely the case with them. They are, they are two of my favorite characters as well. And I could do hearing a lot more about them in the future. Yeah. And, and maybe we will. I mean, is there more? I, the, is there yeah, more in the world, do you think? There are more. Um, I know that uh, I know that there's, I think there's a trilogy, at least, of the stories coming out. And I know that Saladin had told us before that um, the character that we featured in Judgment of Swords, um, Judgment of Swords uh, and Souls, is going to be in the second book. Um, is going to be featured prominently in the second book. Um, oh, great. Been wondering what happened to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So that'll, that'll be cool. Um, one, of the, uh, one, of the, one of the other things that we wanted to talk about here, speaking of, speaking of epic fantasy and epic fantasy trilogies and things like that, it, one of the great things about this book is that it is a huge epic fantasy um, told to you in under 300 pages. It's really short. Um, <laughs> the train does not stop yeah. moving. And it's so... I it mean, is barreling down the track. For, for those of you who have listened to Saladin's uh, short stories, you guys know how, how fast-paced they can be and how, how exciting they are. And it's like that the whole way through. It never slows down. And uh, it, it's nice to read a, a big epic fantasy in, in less than 300 pages, in something that's not a doorstopper. Um, <laughs> you know, something that something that the big paragons of epic fantasy, like uh, George R. R. Martin or, or Robert Jordan or whoever would, you know, would have taken eight books to write. Saladin writes a really kick-ass book in, in 300 pages, so... And it's properly paced, and you're not left in the dust. It's very exciting and very condensed, but you don't feel like you you feel like you get the whole thing. Yeah, it, you definitely feel like you get the whole thing. And I know that that some of you guys listening to this care about not wanting to get sucked into a series with cliffhangers and 
having to wait for future books. But this book is pretty self-contained. Um, you, you read the whole thing, you finish it, and you feel like you've gotten a whole meal, not just an appetizer or a precursor to something else. It's, uh, it's, it's a single story. There's an appropriate sense of closure. Yeah. It, it begins, it has a middle, it ends. There's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's of a piece. Cool. So that's, uh, that's Throne of the Crescent Moon. It's been out for a few months now. It's getting a lot of buzz, and uh, we hope you guys like it. We hope you guys get to check it out. And uh, that's all I have to say right now. Anna? Are you sure? Because I thought you were going to say something in 60 seconds or less about faith. Yeah, one of the things that I want to talk about is the faith of the characters. And each of the characters has their own faith. Most of the characters have have the same, a different spin on the same faith. Which is a type of Islam. A monotheistic right. religion with uh, emphasis on charity and doing good works. And and I personally love reading stories about people who have, um, you, you know, different levels of faith and whose, whose spirituality is important to them. And one of the things I really appreciated about this book is that although they all have, all, all the protagonists have some, some level of faith, they're all at different levels of faith. Um, Adula has been around for a long time and uh he's he's a little bit world weary um he's definitely a believer but he's he's also um a, somewhat of a cynical believer whereas his apprentice for seed is is very fundamental and legalistic um he he has difficulty for example coping with the fact that adula is in love with this mistress of a house of ill repute and he sees that as sinful and yet he sees that Adula's power comes from his faith and he is struggling to reconcile those things. And and he has he even struggles with, you know, some of the um some of what I would think of as as smaller things, particularly in epic fantasies, about, you know, letting somebody letting somebody go when he feels like they should have um, you know, turned him over to the authorities or something, something like that will, would, would really get under his skin and, um, bother him for, for quite a long time. He'll feel like he, you know, he failed his, uh, his order and his God. And, uh, so, so all the characters, um, have these, have these wonderful different levels of faith and, and different, um, different sets of belief. And it's great to see them interplay with each other. Uh, in in that level, in and that it's level. also kind of nice. And this is is possibly another aspect of Saladin's pushback, although he didn't refer to it specifically. Um, that the that they don't um, that it that they're genuine in their faith. That their faith is not some quaint sort of mythological thing, or that there are characters who who are obviously like with that twenty first century meant skeptic mentality, which I find interposed all the time in stories of hundreds of years ago when really that's not how most people thought then, um, that people seem to have that awareness that culturally in this time and place, this feels like how people would think about their faith instead of always having that, um, side character, which is the author telling you, oh, isn't this cute that these people still believe in things, um, which I find incredibly annoying when I encounter it. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, agree. Agree. Cool. Okay, well, I think for reals, uh, that about wraps it up for this time. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you guys get a chance to check out Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon. Hope you, uh, hope you like it. Hope you get to read it or listen to it. And uh, we'll see you next time here at Podcastle. Thanks for listening.